Well, if you have your Bible today, I encourage you to get it out and open it up. And we have two primary passages that are listed there as our texts for today. And those are Galatians 3, verses 27 through 29, and 1 Timothy 2, 12. If you don't have a Bible for yourself today, then you can reach around you in the pews, and there's these black Bibles. In that Bible, um, the Galatians 3 passage is on page 974. First Timothy passage is on page 991. You might want to keep your fingers in those, but we've got a lot of scriptures to go to today. And you may say to yourself, well, why do we have a lot of scriptures to go to today? Why is this different? Why are we not going to Romans as we've been going through Romans verse by verse? Well, we're taking two weeks out. As I mentioned uh, just a little while ago, we have our second town hall meeting coming up after church next Sunday to talk about... Um, about eldership again and to discuss this proposed revised church constitution. I'm going to say more about eldership specifically next week, but uh, at, the, uh, at the first town hall meeting that we had, uh, there were some questions about the roles of men and women in church leadership. I was taken a little bit surprised by surprise by those questions because it's not something that, uh, that I had thought to myself, boy, we're, we're trying to form something that's going to totally shake up how men and women interact and, and carry out their roles in this church. So that, that wasn't really part of the thought process at all. But obviously, anytime you're talking about church leadership, uh, the issue is going to come up with the role of men and the role of women. And so I shouldn't have been too surprised by that. But uh, that's something also that just can generally can cause a lot of confusion. Uh, so today, uh, I'm breaking with the, the norm of expository preaching. Uh, expository preaching is where you take a passage of Scripture and rather than saying, what has God said about topic X, we want to just say, what has God said? So that needs to be the normal way that we go to the Word of God in our worship services, is just to say, what has God said? But occasionally we have to say, what has God said about blank? And today we're doing that. We're going to say, what has God said about the topic of the roles of men and women in church. I just got to say my intention is not to announce policies for the church today. My intention is not to, to announce what uh, women can and can't do. My intention is just to, as best I can, go to what the Bible says and to show you what the scriptures say about this. And what the scriptures say is that God has given men and women equal standing before God, both in creation and in Christ, and that God has given men and women different roles to play, uh, especially in the church and in the home, and that's in creation, and that's in Christ as well. I've got to say, too, that, uh, that when, when I give you a sermon like this, I can't possibly go into every detail question that there is, all right? This is one of those subjects where there, is, there are so many questions and so many objections to this and that that are floating around out there, and even within people who broadly agree about what the Bible says about this, so many opinions about specifics of, of how things should be done with this and that and what should and should not be done by certain people. And, and I just got to say that that's, a sermon is, is just limited in certain ways, all right? And so th this is part of the reason why all the time I'm trying to encourage you guys to, to read books, too. Uh, and, and so a sermon can do a certain amount, and, and a sermon is incredibly necessary. You know, it's the foolishness of preaching, according to 1 Corinthians 1, that, that God uses to save souls. It's so necessary. 
But if you're talking about playing out every possible what if and every question and dealing with every text, that's something a sermon can't necessarily do very well, but a book can do a pretty good job of that. And so that's why sermons are great. And reading books by, by great pastors on good uh, subjects from a biblical perspective is a good idea. So I just want to real quick, I want to give you a book recommendation because you're going to have a hundred questions at the end of this sermon that I haven't answered, and I know that. But here's one that, that I've really been helped by. It's called Men and Women in the Church by Kevin DeYoung. All right? This came out last year. And it is, it says, a short biblical practical introduction. And I found it to be exactly that. I found it to be incredibly helpful. And so I highly recommend it. Um, I listened to it as an audiobook before I bought it on paper. And I actually listened to it for free as an audiobook through the Matawan Library. And so it might be something that you could do too. Uh, but it's very helpful. If you want to go into something a little more detailed than that, like a really deep academic discussion, of the key texts, here's something that does that. It's called Women in the Church, an Analysis and Application of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, edited by Andreas Kostenberger and Tom Schreiner. Um, and I expect that there might be like one person in here who might want to go through that. But if you do, it's a great book, and I'm happy to show those to you later. But all that just to say that I, I understand that we can't get to every possible question in one sermon, and that's not the intention. And I also don't intend to preach 10 sermons on this. Uh, I just want to do what we can to see what the Bible says about this. Now, I realize there's always a danger when a preacher delivers a topical sermon. There's a danger that the, the preacher could just be giving his opinion and his life experience could be driving what he says. And, and I know I'm not immune to that danger. And, and I know that there are feelings at times like, well, maybe preacher just thinks that weird thing because he didn't grow up in New Jersey. And I, yeah, I get that. I, I'm well aware. I grew up in Texas. I grew up in a Southern Baptist background. That's what I was trained in. I, I see that. Uh, you might also be interested to know, and you might not know, that I, I attended a liberal secular university where I was pretty, pretty thoroughly exposed to ideas like uh, that there are five biological genders, the idea that there is literally no difference between men and women, uh, the idea that men ought always to be assumed to be the oppressors and women to be the oppressed. Um, also, the idea that, that the Bible is full of errors, uh, that the books of the Bible were, were arbitrarily chosen to preserve the power of the powerful, and so that because of that, that you can't trust what the Bible says about difficult topics like the roles of men and women. And, and also, you know what, I've been exposed to quite a lot by virtue of the fact that the first few years that I've served as the pastor here, that this church was uh, in communion with a denomination that this church deeply disagreed with a whole lot of things about. Uh, and I made it a point to be involved despite that. And so I've, you know, through that involvement, I've, I've, I've sat in a, a lot of preaching by women. I'm aware that women are able to deliver sermons because of that. Uh, I, there was even once when I served on an ordination council in that, uh, in that denomination uh, where I, I got there and found out that the uh, ordination council was being chaired by a woman and that this woman uh, actually almost, she came very close to recommending that the candidate for ordination not be ordained because he kept on referring to God with the masculine pronoun he. And she deeply objected to that. She felt like that was preferring men over women, which obviously, I mean, it's 
Bible calls God he. <laughs> this is how God has, has described himself. So all that just to say that I, I, have, I have my own life experiences, but I have my own life experiences that also make me pretty biased toward favoring women. And, and I have to say that I have a godly mother. Uh, I have two godly grandmothers who are both now with the Lord. And I know that every good thing that all of us have is a gift from God, but I just especially have to say that, that uh, one of the greatest gifts that God has given me is my wife. And I've said before, she is my favorite church member, and that's not going to change. Um, and so many of the good things in my life have come about because I married her. And, and it's really an incredible blessing. She, she loves God. She loves people. She's objectively smarter than me. She's good at everything she does. And I have no doubt that if she were the one that God had tasked with giving this sermon, she'd do a better job at it than me. And it's not just my wife. There's, there's so many women in this church that are knowledgeable, that are godly, that are faithful, and they're treasures to this church. You ladies are treasures to this church. And your input is welcome. Your input always will be welcome. And if we ever get in ourselves in a situation where it's not welcome, we have gone way off track because you ladies are a treasure to the church. But I'll just say this. If I were just going to go off of my upbringing and if I were just going to go off of my experiences, if I were just going to go off of my sense of things, I don't know where I'd land, but I guess I would probably end up siding with the feminists if that were the case, partly because that's the easy thing to do. That's the wide and easy path of least resistance in the world that we live in, is just to say, okay, let's not fight that battle. Let's just say everybody ought to do everything, and let's not worry about it. But our call as Christians is not to root our views in our experiences. Our call as Christians is not to root our views in what seems like common sense. Our call as Christians is not to root our views in what everyone around us thinks our call as Christians is not to root our views in the path of easy living and least resistance. Our call as Christians is to root our views in the Word of God and to know that His Word is the light unto our path. Our, our call as Christians is to say that even if something in the Word of God rubs us the wrong way, that the problem is not the Word of God. The problem is that our fur is turned the wrong way and we need to turn around which is called repentance. We need to get into a position where we agree with God. Earlier, when we prayed from Psalm 105, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, which when you first hear that, it, it almost feels like, ah, you get out God's word and it's going to make everything easier, but the next thing it says is, I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules which means that sometimes when you get out the Word of God and it shows you the right path, the right way to walk, that that's a way to walk where you wouldn't normally want to go. And you have to say to yourself, I will do as God has said. I will follow the path that God has given. And we need to do that in the roles of men and women as well as in everything else. But let's go to the Scriptures together. Let's see, first of all, if you're following along in the back of your bulletin, that God has given equal standing before God to men and women. Equal standing before God to men and women. This starts in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So listen to this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What it just said right there is that God created mankind in his image. And by mankind, it doesn't just mean male. It specifically says male and female, he created them. In the, the, the act of creation, God didn't give men a higher standing than women, and he didn't give women a higher standing than men in his sight. He made them both equally in his image for his glory. And also in the creation, uh, well, you know what, I'm going to hold off on that, and I'll say that in the new covenant, God also gives us equal standing before him. Now, where, where we come to this, what I'm talking about with the new covenant is through faith in Christ, being a Christian, that, that we as Christians have this standing before God that's described in Galatians 3, verse 27. He says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Did you hear that thing about male and female? Now, there are some who trip up on that, and they say, well, that means that all male and female roles are erased in Christ, or that we need to uh, you know, go along with the gender confusion of the world because it says in Christ there is neither male nor female. That is not the point of this passage. That's not the point of this passage at all. The point of this passage is something that's much, much better news than that which is that no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, whether you're Jew or Gentile or slave or free, or you could go down a lot of other lists, rich or poor, American or non-American, Christian background or pagan background or wherever you come from, and he includes in there male and female, if you come to faith in Jesus, you are brought in. And there is equal ground at the foot of the cross. And everybody who has faith in Jesus is described in Galatians 3 as sons of God. And he uses the masculine word there, sons, because he's connecting it to an inheritance, which in those days would not necessarily have gone to the daughters, but he's saying male and female have a full inheritance of adopted children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so in the new covenant, as we come to faith in Jesus, this is good news for all sinners. Sinner, come to Jesus, recognize your sin, recognize that Jesus died for our sins, recognize that he rose from the dead, put your faith in him, and you are fully accepted in the sight of God. You're not accepted with caveats that you have to work your way up some ladder to pass some other people on some kind of a a, a ranking. No, you are clothed in Christ. You're united to Christ. You have God as your father just as Christ has God as his father so that we can cry out, the spirit crying out with our spirits, Abba, Father, because we've been adopted in. And that counts whether Jew, Greek, slave, free, male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in God's sight, God has given men and women equal standing in creation and equal standing in the new covenant. That's really good news. Uh, 
And we also need to know that God has given men and women different roles. Equal standing doesn't mean the same roles, okay? Let me just give you an example where we all know that this is the case. We all know that this is the case. You know that if you're a Christian and that your boss at your job is a Christian, that you don't then come to your boss at your job and say, Galatians 3 says that we are all one in Christ, and so therefore you should start obeying my orders instead of me obeying your orders. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And so, so even as God has, has given us equal standing, he's also given us roles to play. So, so that as, as I am to submit to the orders of the police when they come and they tell me to pull over, which by God's grace hasn't happened in a few years, all right? As, as all of us are in a position where we may have authority in some areas and, and need to submit in other areas, that God has given different roles to men and to women, and he did that from the beginning. He does that in particular in two areas, which is the church and the home, but you see this in Genesis chapter 2. Where Genesis 1 described all of creation, Genesis 2 zooms in and describes the creation of mankind specifically. And it says in Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So you see here, and the New Testament connects this and quotes this and, see, and says that there's something to the order of creation, that God made man first and woman second. The Bible makes that connection in the New Testament. There's also something in, in the fact that it says that the woman was to be a helper to Adam, which doesn't mean inferior, doesn't mean less in the image of God. It just means here are God-given roles for the husband to lead and the wife to follow his leadership as a helper. That's carried over into the New Covenant as well. As, as believers in Christ, here's what it says to husbands and wives in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 28. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. doesn't say submit to every man. doesn't say submit to every Christian man. doesn't say submit to every man in the church. It says submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So the role that God has given a wife, a Christian wife with her husband, is to submit to him in a similar way as the church is called to submit to Christ. And then what's, what about husbands? It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Men, I've just got to say this. In your marriage, your wife is not your child. You are not called to treat your wife in the way that you would treat a child. You're not called to treat your wife as a slave. You're not called to treat your wife as a doormat to be beaten into submission. Your job is not to look at your wife and say, how dare you fail to submit, woman? No, your job is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. You know what Jesus said about the way that he loved the church? In Matthew chapter 20, as the disciples were competing for position against each other, he said, 
that the Gentiles do, that, do, do things that way, of trying to lord their leadership over each other, but it is not to be so among you. He, he said, Here, here's how you're to lead. As, as Christ came, I, I'm going to turn there because I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. I didn't write it down before we got there. I'm going I'm to turn to Matthew chapter 20 really quick so we can read that together. So he says uh, in verse 25 of Matthew 20, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, just as Jesus didn't come and demand to be served, but instead gave himself up. He says, husbands, that's how you're to love your wives. That's how you're to lead in your home, is not by a demand for submission, even though that is the call that God gives to women, is to submit to their husbands, but the husband's role is to lovingly, sacrificially, give himself up for his wife to lead her in holiness. And the call is for wives to follow their husband's leadership, and it's not only for those with godly husbands. I've heard that argument so many times. Oh, yes, it says submit to your husbands, but not if they're not Christians, or but not if they're doing a bad job at leading. No, well, it says in 1 Peter 3, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. doesn't mean obey them when they tell you to sin. The Bible never means that. never is telling you to sin. But it does say that this is the role that God has given to men and women in marriage. God has also given this role in the new covenant in the church. These are the, the two human institutions where you see explicitly in Scripture God giving authority to lead to men, and God giving commands to women to follow, is in the home and in the church. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, and this is the other main passage for today, is 1 Timothy 2, especially verse 12, but I'll start at verse 11. It says this, remember, remember that this is in Paul's instructions to Timothy about how to pastor. That's what First and Second Timothy and Titus are all about. We call them the pastoral epistles because they're instructions about how to pastor. It says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now there's a hundred questions that come up about this passage. What does saved through childbearing mean? I'll just address that really quickly, even though I can't, I said already, I can't address every little question. But I think what it's talking about there is not that initial forgiveness of sins. It's not saying you become converted to faith in Christ through bearing a child. I think it's talking about how our salvation begins in the cross, continues in the application of the cross to us, and continues through, through, through the Holy Spirit at conversion. But our salvation, it keeps going until we get to heaven. We, we're not only those who have been saved, we are those who are being saved. And part of God saving us is also our sanctification, our growing in holiness, and our persevering in the faith all the way to the end. And I think that's what it's talking about. I think it's saying that, that women are called 
in their sanctification, in their pressing on toward heaven, to embrace the different role that God has given to women as opposed to men, to learn to celebrate that, to embrace that, rather than to chafe against it and rebel against it. Now, the key passage here, though, the key verse is this one, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Boy, all the kinds of objections that there have been throughout church history, why this must not apply. There's those who have said, well, this doesn't apply because it's specific to the context where Timothy was serving in the church of Ephesus, where Ephesus was a center for the worship of the goddess Artemis, and the goddess Artemis was worshipped in this way that would be comparable to modern feminism. And because of that context, it's just saying, well, in the context of the worship of Artemis in, in, in Ephesus, well, then women should not take this role in your city. It's a big problem with that, which is that the Scripture doesn't say any of that. If you dig into the history of the city of Ephesus, all of that appears to not even be true anyway. So if you've heard that before, that this is just about that city and that time and that place, it's not. It's just not. If you're thrown off by the fact that Paul says, I, and you say, oh, well, maybe this is not really the Word of God here. Maybe... Maybe Paul slipped into just a personal opinion here. Well, you know what you've got then? You've got 13 of the books of the Bible that are immediately thrown into question. If this guy can just shift back and forth between delivering the word of God and delivering his own opinions. You've also got a problem then with the letters of Peter because Peter says in his letters that the letters of Paul are scripture. And then if you've got a problem with Peter, then you've got a problem with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As, as they would have had a, an awful lot to do with Peter's recollection of Jesus' teaching. E- essentially, if you say to yourself, well, this is just Paul's opinion, you can pretty much take your whole New Testament and throw it out and just say, let's love people. <laughs> so I, I just got to say, yeah, this is the Word of God. And, and so when it rubs us the wrong way, we got to turn around. We got to repent. We got to say, I need to agree with God. God's opinion, God's instruction here is that women in the church setting are not to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, what what, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that women, by God's design, it's not as though they're incapable of teaching. It's not as though they're incapable of exercising authority over a man. It's just that God says, here's his plan. Here's what he would have us to do. Here's what his word says and we're to submit to that. So should, should women set policy for the church? Should women be placed in the office of elder or deacon? And the answer there is, is no. That would be an exercising of authority over the men of the church. And it says not to do that. Now, should they give input about the direction of the church? Should, should they vote in business meetings as members? Yes, absolutely. Of course they should. But that's not the same thing as exercising authority over the men. Should women preach the Sunday sermon? There's, there's actually been some who, who recently have begun to claim that they hold uh, tightly to the teaching of 1 Timothy 2.12, and yet they'll allow a woman to, to give the Sunday sermon because they say, well, she's doing it under the authority of the male elders. Guys, no, that, that's, just, that's just a weird... That, it's just plainly not what it's saying. 
where, where there is this, this teaching of the church in this office of authority that, no, that's it, no, <laughs> all right? But then the question comes up, well, can they pray or read Scripture in church? And that's a, that's a tougher question, but I think according to 1 Corinthians 11, yes. It says in 1 Corinthians 11, and most people get distracted by what it says there, but because uh, it, it, it's the passage about head coverings, right? Which, boy, I definitely don't have time to answer all your questions about head coverings today. But people get distracted by the fact that when it brings up head coverings, it says that wives are to wear those, those head coverings or to have that sign of submission to the authority of their husbands in the context of when they pray or prophesy in church. Paul doesn't say, don't do that. He says, when you pray in church, when you prophesy in church, which is equivalent today to reading Scripture aloud, that there should be a sign of authority on the woman as still being in subjection to, uh, I shouldn't say subjection, still being in submission to her husband. So then the question comes up, well, can women lead worship? Well, it depends on what you mean by lead worship, which partly depends on what you mean by worship. Because most Christians, when they say the word worship, they're talking about a song set in the middle of the service. So many Christians, when, when they say the word worship, they, they think that worship is singing. And I've got to just clarify, singing is worship, but when we gather to worship, every aspect of what we're doing together needs to be worship. Obviously, the primary aspect of worship, uh, as we understand it, is submitting ourselves underneath the Word of God and the preaching of the Word of God. And so if, if you're saying, well, can a woman lead worship in terms of being the one who is leading the church in the service of worship, well, no, that, that would be one of those acts of teaching and exercising authority. But if you're asking, can the woman direct the music can the woman be involved in terms of setting the tempo and helping everybody to follow along with the words? I just cannot figure out how in Scripture that that would be prohibited. Uh, I think we, in fact, have a woman who is, is directing music every Sunday from the piano, and I happen to really, really love her. And maybe I'm biased because of that. But, um, but guys, I, I don't think that we're prohibited from that. But again, I understand there's all kinds of questions that come up here, and I just can't answer every one. And again, I'm not trying to announce policies. And if you think, well, we need to, uh, we need to solidify some kind of a policy about this right now, pray that God would move us toward appointing additional elders who could give me some better wisdom, all right? Do you know where our elders' meetings happen right now? Privately right here. <laughs> And I cannot wait until God provides us with some qualified, able men who can serve as elders to help answer and set policy on more difficult questions like that. But let's just go back. Let's keep thinking about what, what does it say here? Well, the Bible is explicit about male leadership in the home and in the church. One of the questions that also always comes up is, well, what, what about other institutions? What about government? Can we have a woman president? What about my job? Can, can I have a boss who is a woman if I'm a man? Am I supposed to follow what she says? Well, the answer here is that the Bible is, is clear about leadership in the home. It's clear about leadership in the church. 
But when it comes to other institutions, there's not necessarily that prohibition. All right? So I don't think that you're violating Scripture if you are a woman who has a job where you get promoted to a position where some of your employees are men and you're giving them direction. I just don't think that that is the church or the home. I think you have an example of Deborah in the Old Testament who's in a position of government leadership. Now, you've got to remember, part of the reason she's in that position of government leadership is because it was supposed to be a man named Barak who was in that position, and he was a wimpy man and wouldn't do his job. And so it's, it's not necessarily the best reflection, but it's not something that would be prohibited. But what, here, here are the, the things that just put this together, wrap this up, all right? Here's what the Bible says about the roles of men and women. The Bible says that God has given equal standing in his eyes to men and to women. The Bible says that God has given different roles to men and to women, especially in the church and in the home. Now, there's two appealing paths of sin that you could go down, two appealing ways to various human hearts of how to rebel against what God has said in these things. One appealing path, if you're following in that outline in your bulletin, is to despise God-given gender roles. That's something that began immediately after the fall into sin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, it says, To the woman God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Now listen to this part. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What that means is that immediately, because of the the entrance of sin into the world, that the woman's desire would be to lead her husband, and that his leadership of her would be something that would cause conflict. Have you ever felt that in your marriage? Conflict? You know where conflict in your marriage comes from? Sin. It comes from Genesis 3. It started there. And if you say to yourself, well, that that doesn't sound, maybe that sounds like that that the real problem is the male leadership in the home. He shall rule over you. That was the result of sin. No, you've got to compare it. You might want to mark this down to, if you're you're wondering about this, write these verses down. So it's Genesis 3.16, and you can compare it to Genesis 4.7, where in Genesis 4.7, Cain is told that sin is crouching at the door, Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same exact wording that it said in Genesis 3.16, that the wife's desire shall be for her husband, and he shall rule over her. What does that mean? Well, it means just like sin wants to conquer you, but you must not let it. That part of the temptation that's come into the world, part, part of the brokenness of sin, is for wives to want to conquer their husbands and for husbands to then have temptation to be oppressors of their wives in trying to stop that. So there's all kinds of brokenness there. But just to say that all the way from Genesis 3 forward, there has been a temptation in the sinful human heart to look at the God-given gender roles that God has made and to despise them, to belittle them. That despising doesn't just happen in the hearts of women, by the way. It happens in the hearts of men all the time to say, ugh, that sounds gross. Instead of saying, oh, that's what the Bible says. I need to change my mind. There's also the temptation in the other direction to despise our equality before God. 
this is something that every sinner has to deal with, is our, our attempt in our own heart to want to find some way to, to uh, you know, position ourselves in, in roles against each other that are you know, proving that I'm better, that, that I ought to be thought of more highly. It's a temptation for men against women. It says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. By the way, when it says weaker vessel there, I think it's talking about physical strength. If a man absolutely wants to dominate his wife, he can pretty much do it because of his muscles. But he's saying, don't treat your wife that way. Don't dominate your wife. Show honor to the woman since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And he says this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This, from the beginning, has also been a temptation of sin for, for men to, to look at women and to say, they're nothing. They better get in line. I'm going to make them do what I say. Guys, that's ugly. That is ugly. That's oppression. That's sin. If that's the way you think of it, you need to repent. And what it says here is that if you don't repent of it, your prayers will be hindered. Guys, God, God takes what you do seriously with your wife, all right? So a couple of final questions. How should women serve the church, all right? So, so we've talked about what the Bible says women are not to do, which is to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Well, what are women to do? Well, it, it says this in Ephesians 4.12, that pastors are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, you may never have thought of that as a passage about women, but who are the saints? Is it just the male saints? No, it's all the saints that are to be equipped for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That includes men and women. I was really, really helped by listening to a couple of lectures delivered by a pastor named Robert Fisher almost 20 years ago. Uh, he, well, he delivered them almost 20 years ago. I listened to them a lot of years after that. But um, it was at the Reformed Baptist Church of Louisville, and uh, it's called The Role of Men, or excuse me, The Role of Women in the Ministry of the Church. And if you Google that, you can find it online somewhere. But, but he points out that in the scriptures that you see that there's all kinds of ways that women are called to serve in the church. One of them is that women are to learn. In 1 Timothy 2.11, where it says, let a woman learn in quietness and submissiveness, so, many, so often that the, those terms quietness and submissiveness get the focus, but you may have missed. It says, let a woman learn. And you may not realize that that was extremely controversial in the first century. There, there was a well-known rabbi, um, I think his name was Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus, who uh, in the Jerusalem Talmud in the first century was recorded as saying, let the Torah be burned rather than giving it to a woman. That, that was the prevailing religious opinion at that time is if women are going to be around the Bible, it would better be burned than to teach it to them. Well, you know what, it, you know what Jesus did? He sat down with the woman at the well. He taught her. He sat down with, with uh, Mary and Martha and told Mary that she had chosen the better portion by sitting at his feet and learning from him rather than Martha, who was so busy with kitchen work. He, he, he was determined to teach women. And the apostles were determined to teach women. And when it says, let a woman learn, that was revolutionary in the first century. And we need to rejoice that this is the case. 
Guys, there are many women in this room right now who are much better students of the Bible and much better theologians than many men who are sitting around you right now. And that's a beautiful thing. And, and so women are to learn the scriptures. Women are also to teach. Now, you, you may have thought, well, I, didn't the pastor just say they're not to teach? Well, it says they're not to teach or exercise authority over, a men, but the Bible, over men. But the Bible does say in Titus 2, older women are to teach what is good and so train the young women. To teach women and to teach children and to teach in their homes and to teach in appropriate ways that are God-given. Women are also... In various scriptures in the New Testament, they're, they're told to, to participate in practical ministries of compassion, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, caring for the afflicted, devoting themselves to good works, it says in 1 Timothy 5.10. They're to assist in diaconal ministries. I think that's why you have the, the instructions in 1 Timothy 3 right in the middle of the qualifications for deacons. It says something about their wives. Because I think there's an assumption, hey, these men are not going to be doing these, these compassion and practical ministries all by themselves. Obviously, their wives are going to be getting involved in this. And there's a woman named Phoebe who was a servant of the church. Who, there, there are those who were involved in widow care, all kinds of things. There are, women are to pray. Wednesday nights, a prayer meeting. Men, I just got to say, right now the women are putting you to shame in their ministry of prayer for this church. And praise God, praise God. Women are to work in their homes as a ministry of the church with, with hospitality, opening up their homes as a suitable place for gospel ministry and, and as a setting to win their families to Christ, as a, a place to produce workers for the church as they bring up their children. Women are to participate in the Great Commission, as you see happening with those women who go together uh, with, with the disciples from cities and villages proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God in Luke 8. Women are to display godly femininity. They're they're to be an example to others in the church as as they let their adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious, 1 Peter 3, 4. And you could probably come up with 20 more ways that the Bible says that women should serve, but those are just a few. Uh, Like I say, I was really helped by Pastor Robert Fisher thinking through that a little bit. Another question, just a final question to think about. How should men serve women in the church? How should men serve women? Well, here's the answer. 1 Timothy 5.2, treat older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Now, does it say there, treat women like slaves? Treat women like children? No, it says, treat older women like mothers. Treat younger women like sisters in all purity. There's an attitude here that men are not to be on a hunt for unsubmissive women to scold or to despise in the church. Men are to have an attitude of love toward the women in the church as mothers in the faith and as sisters in Christ and to see how can we build up and serve and encourage these blessed sisters in Jesus. And in the home, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How should men serve women? Well, in the way that Christ served the church. And I just want to take us back there because all of this has to do, ultimately, if you're wondering, why did God make us this way? Why did God make male and female? 
And, and why, why did he set it up so that they're equal in his sight and yet have different roles and, and would lead us to so many confusing questions and, and so, many, so many potential objections and, and such a mess? <laughs> why would he do it this way? Well, the answer that's given in Ephesians 5 is he did it this way more than anything else to reflect the beautiful relationship between Christ and his church. He did it to show us, hey, Jesus came not to to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the church, the people of God, when, when we repent and believe in Christ, we come into a place not of chafing against his leadership and saying, ah, I can't believe that Jesus makes me do things this way. But no, of saying, this is my Savior who loves me and gave himself up for me, and I want to lovingly follow him as my Lord. And so roles of men and women are to show that. They're to point us to the gospel, and they're to remind us of that. And I just I don't want to end here by, without saying, hey, sinner, Hey, person who who is still lost in your sins apart from faith in Christ, you could, as you walk out of here today, you could walk out of here scoffing that Christians believe something so backwards, something so medieval. Or you could look and you could see the beauty of the fact that Jesus came from heaven and gave himself up for us and died for our sins, and you could submit to his loving leadership, to his lordship, to his salvation. You can come, and I invite you to come and to place your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And as us who trust in Jesus, we can say, hey, we can follow him in all that he has said, and we can do it in loving submission to his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have made us male and female. This is all in in your beautiful design. God, before you created, there was no male and female. There was no humanity. There was nothing. And and you thought of all this, and you built it in to who we are and into the world. And it's beautiful, and we thank you for it. God, I pray that you would give us grace to understand what your Bible, yes, what your word says in the Bible about difficult topics. God, we don't want to base major decisions on obscure passages, but we also don't want to, we don't want to chafe against clear passages. And so I pray that you would uh, give us grace in understanding and following what you have said about the equality of men and women and the different roles of men and women at the same time. God, I pray that you would give us uh, ongoing uh, repentance. I I pray that if there are those, whether men or women, who have... uh, resisted and chafed against the, the design that you have for male and female, I, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, grant them repentance, grant them an overwhelming love for and faith in Christ that would turn them to follow uh, the path that you have lit up for us in your word about these things. God, I pray for those who are apart from Christ. I pray that you'd bring them to Christ. I pray that Christ would love them give themselves up, give himself up for them. And uh, Lord, that you would give them salvation in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.